And would you pray with me? God, we thank you for um, the cross of your son. God, we thank you for um, the way that it shields us from your wrath and makes us most blessed forever in him. God, we thank you that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you've sent your spirit to open our eyes so that we see in that cross the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you have led us to pour contempt on our pride. We thank you that you have led us to even desire to count our richest gain as loss in comparison to knowing Christ and having you as our God and our Father. God, we thank you that your amazing and divine love demands our life and soul and all. This is right and this is the greatest blessing for us to belong to you in such a way. God, we thank you that you have decreed it, that it will be so for all of your people one day. God, we thank you for our citizenship in the new Jerusalem. God, I pray now that as your word uh, goes forth, God, I pray that you would work in us what's pleasing to you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. We offer them to you in the name of Jesus. God, and I pray that your word wouldn't come forth in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you open your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 23. Uh, Pastor Dan is currently preaching through the final words of the Apostle Paul, at least his final words that are recorded in Scripture in 2 Timothy. And we have the privilege this morning of hearing some other final words of a great man of God, Joshua. And we rightly ascribe special significance to words that people speak when they know that they are dying or close to death. So we do well this morning to lean in and feel the weight of what Joshua says, and do so all the more because this is holy scripture. And so hear not just what one dying man says to the people of God, but hear what the Spirit says to the church through these words. At the time of Joshua 23, God had exalted Joshua to be the leader of his covenant people, Israel. Joshua has led the Israelites into the ancient land of Canaan, which God promised to give uh, to the nation that would come from Abraham's descendants, Israel. And here in chapter 23, after that work is done, Joshua gives a farewell speech. Now, the basic point of these parting words is to exhort Israel to be faithful to God. God has given them the land. He's given them rest in the land. And now they are to receive all of good, God's good and gracious gifts by simply trusting Him and giving themselves to Him. In this chapter, there are two main 
encouragements or motivations to that ongoing fidelity. And those come before and after an exhortation to ongoing fidelity to the Lord. One of these encouragements to faithfulness comes as a promise of divine blessing. The other encouragement comes as a warning of divine judgment. So both of these encouragements, one uplifting, one terrifying, are meant to motivate Israel's ongoing devotion to God, and by extension, ours too. Our devotion to God should be motivated by His faithfulness to bless and His faithfulness to judge and discipline. So the first two verses introduce this farewell address. Look at verse 1, Joshua 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. Uh, So the setting here is a long time afterward, the things we've been reading about in the book of Joshua. It's been many years now. After the Lord has given Israel rest to their surrounding enemies, a fair amount of time has passed in the narrative. This is long after the victories have been won and God has fulfilled those promises. Long after the land has been divided up into inheritances for each tribe. Still, though, as we know, uh, there's more work to be done for each tribe to drive out any inhabitants that remain in the inheritances that have been given to them. And Joshua now is old and well advanced in years. He calls all Israel, perhaps with a special focus on her leaders, and tells them, I am getting old, and there's something I need to tell you. There's a certain gravity that comes with an introduction like this. It signals this is going to be important instruction. I'm not going to be around much longer Listen to me. Uh, Contrary to the foolishness of our age, which can idolize youth, when someone prefaces their speech with, I'm old and advanced in years, biblical wisdom teaches us we better listen all the more attentively. How does Joshua want to use some of his final words? He wants, first of all, to recount what the Lord has done for his people to tell them of the Lord's works again, to remind them one more time of how good and faithful and mighty God has been for His people. I wonder if that is how you would choose to spend some of your final words. Honestly, if you could gather, knowing that you were dying, if you could gather all your family or all the church, and say, I'm not going to be around a lot longer, and there's something I want to tell you all. What would you want to speak about? Would you want to speak about the Lord's works, and His promises, and His warnings? And if not, why not? The answer is probably related to what Jesus said, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and out of the treasures of one's heart, one breaks forth his words. 
Joshua's farewell speech begins, uh, as I mentioned, by recounting the goodness of the Lord to Israel. And let's look at those verses now. It begins in verse 3, and this begins the first main section of the chapter as I see it. Remember God's faithfulness to bless. Look at verse 3. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So these three verses tell the story of the book of Joshua in miniature. Verse 3, the conquering of the land, God drove out the nations. Verse 4, the apportioning of the land, God gave allotments in the land to the tribes of Israel. Verse 5, the possessing of those inheritances. God promises to be with Israel in the future, as each tribe is still responsible for, for going driving out any nations that remain, and actually taking up residence in those lands that have been given. And God will ensure this effort will succeed. He promised. So verses 3 and 4, Joshua urges Israel to recall the past promise-keeping work of God. In verse 5, Joshua urges them to consider the future promise-keeping work of God. And the major emphasis of these three verses is that these things truly are the work of God. He did these things. Verse 3, the Lord your God did all this to these nations. Verse 3, the Lord your God has fought for you. Verse 5, the Lord your God will drive out the remaining tribes for you. Verse 5, the Lord your God has promised to do this for you. And if we translated uh, these verses in an even more literalistic fashion, it would sound even more emphatic. More literally, verse 3, part of it reads, The Lord your God... He fought for you. Similarly, in verse 5, the same construction. The Lord your God, He will push them back from before you. This is what your God has done. Notice every time that the Lord is referenced in these verses, He is called the Lord your God. This is what your God has done for you. Remember what the Lord your God has done in the past. He did as He promised. He did it for you. Remember what the Lord your God will do in the future. He did. He will do as He promised. He'll do it for you. Does Israel really need to hear this again? Of course. Do you know how much you need this kind of encouragement? To remember God's faithfulness. To bless. What, what do you need most? What do you think that you need most when you come to church and gather with the people of God? You don't need someone to blow your mind with things you've never thought of before. You need someone to tell you again how God has acted definitively in history by His grace for your sake. You need someone to tell you again that God has promised to act again in the future, definitively in history for your sake. You need someone to tell you again that Christ your God has died for you and Christ your God was raised for you 
And Christ your God will come for you. And so you are his people. Now love and trust him. And the tragic irony is the things we need the most are often the things that we're uh, tempted to tune out the earliest. Because we've heard it before. Down in verse 14, Joshua tells the congregation in the middle of the verse, you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, I like that phrase, you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, how God has acted. You need to know what God has done in Christ in your hearts and in your souls in a way, that is, in a way that affects the core of who you are. You need to know what God has done and then know it again in a way that compels you and constrains you and controls you and captivates you. Remember what God has done in faithfulness to bless. But often we we don't do that. We don't live the Christian life out of that remembrance. Consider these words of James Montgomery Boyce commenting on these verses. He says, It is natural that Joshua should have spoken of the Lord's past acts on Israel's behalf, but it is also unnatural in that we do not naturally think this way ourselves. On the contrary, we separate ourselves from God's actions. We separate ourselves from what God has done by making faith a matter of subjective feelings, as if what really matters is how we feel about religion, rather than knowing and acting on what God has done. We do not generally admit this, of course, and we believe God has done great acts of redemption for us in the past, but often this becomes less important to us than how we feel now. And we begin to act on our feelings rather than upon what we know of God and God's ways. Joshua rightly has, first of all, reminded Israel of God's faithfulness to bless and save and give and do good, past and future. And then in verse 6, he transitions to begin speaking of the obligation placed on Israel in response to God's past and future promised goodness. And this begins our second main point, as I see it. Consider God's call to devotion. Consider God's call to devotion. Look at verse 6 now. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now, note, first of all, The logic of grace. You may not have noticed it in this verse about obedience. I see it in the very first word of verse 6 in the ESV. Therefore, God has been good. God has been faithful. God has fought for you. Therefore, obey. It's not the other way around. It's not you've obeyed. Therefore, God will be good and faithful to you and will fight for you. God's goodness to His people, His salvation of His people, His good promises to His people, His faithfulness to keep those promises, that's that's the ground of the call to devotion. It's all of 
grace. It always has been, even to Old Testament Israel. God's goodness and saving grace does not come as the result of His people's obedience, but it does demand His people's obedience as the response. Didn't we just sing that? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Part of the good news for us today is that because of what Jesus has done for sinners, God's grace has come to us, His goodness has come to us, and it not only demands our faith and obedience, but His grace also empowers our faith and obedience. The grace of God gives to us what the grace of God demands from us, and this is our hope. Before we move forward, let me point out again quickly that the logic of grace follows this exhortation to devotion as well. Peek down at verse 8 quickly. You shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Cling to the Lord. Be devoted. Verse 9, for because the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations and, and fought for you and kept His promise. So, so in verses 6 through 8, Joshua urges ongoing fidelity to the Lord. And on either side of this call to devotion is the same foundation for it. God's gracious, faithful action. The flow of these three verses, right? God has been good and gracious. Therefore, obey and cling to Him because God has been good and gracious. Now look back at verse 6 now. There's much for us to learn here from this call to devotion. Verse 6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Uh, So this command in this verse should remind the reader of the book of Joshua of the charge that God gave to Joshua at the very beginning of this book. In chapter 1, verse, verses 6 through 9, very similar. Just as the Lord commanded Joshua in chapter 1, so too here. In chapter 23, Joshua commands God's people to be strong and specifically to have the faith-fueled courage needed to obey unswervingly all that is written. It's much the same charge the Lord gave to Joshua before the conquest. And now through Joshua, God gives it to His people after the conquest. Be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book. All that is written in what book? We're told. The book of the law of Moses. Well, that book, my friends, is the Bible. Of course, it's only the first five books of the Bible that we have now, but it was all the Bible they had at the time. It was all the Bible they needed at the time, according to God's perfect wisdom and His purposes of grace. Even so, it was indeed a portion of the very same Bible that we have here today. And God tells Joshua, be very strong. Excuse me, Joshua tells the people, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in that book. That's what devotion to God looks like? How should you respond to His grace and faithfulness and blessing and all the good that God has done for you? Look to the Bible. How should we respond to the past and promised future grace of God? 
be strong to do what is written in the Bible. I point this out to say uh, and direct your attention to the truth that since at least the days of Joshua, which was thousands of years ago, this is how God desires His people to respond to His saving works. True religion has been a Bible-centered way of living for a long time. A long time. So you may find it strange that the true and living God would, in the main, relate to His people and govern His people using a book, a set of writings. But this is how God has desired to lead and even be present among us. So we're not bookworm, bookworm anti-supernaturalists to be devoted to the Bible. This is the wisdom of God, and this is the basic form of devotion to Him, and what the faithful God of grace requires of His people as a response, that we would be very careful to consider the Bible. Joshua has a specific piece of Bible instruction in mind that he wants Israel to be strong to do. He explains it in verse 7 and 8. Look there. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. Cling to the Lord your God. Obviously, the enemy of that course of faithfulness was described in verse 7. Associating with the remaining nations in the land is the beginning of the slide into idolatry. And associating with these nations will come as the inevitable result of not driving out the remaining nations, like God commanded they should and promised they could, because He fights for them. Allowing them to remain would mean, in time, mixing with them. And these nations would rub off on Israel. And especially dangerous would be mixing with them in marriages. That would be a sure gateway to idolatry. And that particular concern is made explicit even later in this chapter. So Joshua warns the people to be very strong, to cling to God. And doing this would necessitate that they would have to be very strong not to mix with the remaining nations. More on that to come. Uh, We may be surprised, before we move on from verse 8 though, to read that after Joshua told Israel, you shall cling to the Lord, he added, as you have done to this day. We're not used to Israel being commended for their obedience very often. But in the main... Israel is faithful to the Lord throughout the book of Joshua, and that's, um, that's clear. They, bon't, they don't bat a thousand to be sure, but, but overall they cling to the Lord in a way that is certainly commendable, and so God, through Joshua, commends them. But Israel is entering, entering into a new era. I remember verse 1, it has been a long time since the Lord gave them rest, so the dust of the conquest has settled. The years of war did not wear down their commitment to clinging to the Lord. But will the years of rest? 
Uh, Joshua knows the temptation to let off the gas when the crisis goes away, to stop clinging as tightly to the Lord when life goes back to normal. Now, this matter has come up in previous sermons on Joshua, but apparently it needs to come up again today because it seems Joshua is still worried about it. We read often in the New Testament the truth that how people respond to trials shows the genuineness of their faith, and it is so. But there's also a sense, isn't there, in which how people live after the trial is over shows the genuineness of their faith also. When the hardship ends and things get a little less intense or even significantly less intense, do you still cling to the Lord your God? In verses 9 and 10, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Joshua once again grounds the call to devotion in the mighty works of God. Let's look there now. Again, context, you shall cling to the Lord, verse 9, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. Verse 10, one man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as He promised you. The power of the Lord and and the impossibility of doing these things without Him is what's highlighted here. Verse 9, these were great and strong nations that the Lord has driven out, which means you didn't accomplish this. No man has been able to stand before you. It's even better than that. Verse 10, it's as if one of you put to flight a thousand men, which means you didn't accomplish this. The matter is explicitly stated at the end of verse 10. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. He promised He would, and He did. So the main emphasis of verse 3 through 5 is repeated here. Do they need to hear it again? Do you need to hear it again? The Lord your God has done these things. He's done them for you. Just as Joshua did following verses 3 through 5, he again issues a call to devotion to the Lord. Again, in response to and because of the mighty gracious acts of the Lord. Verse 11, there's a big therefore. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. The Lord your God fights for you. Therefore, Be very careful to love Him. Now, that's an interesting way to speak about loving God, isn't it? Be very careful to love. Uh, The way our contemporary culture talks about love and thinks about love doesn't really accord with this notion, I don't think. What is it to be very careful to love someone? Uh, We often think of love as this spontaneous thing, like an external force that seizes us, that we can't control and are simply subject to its whims. What does it mean to be very careful to love someone? We often think of love, right, as something that comes and captures you while you have your guard down. And the Holy Spirit is telling us to think about loving God in something of the opposite manner. Keep your guard up so that your heart stays secure and set upon God in love. The wording of this command in the Hebrew doesn't so much communicate the idea of being careful to do something as it does the idea of 
exercising a watchful care over yourself. Watch over your soul. That idea is reflected more so in how the King James or, or the NASB translates the verse. The King James has it, Take good heed unto yourselves. Or the NASB, Take diligent heed to yourselves, literally to your souls. So he's saying, keep a very close watch over your soul. Be very watchful over yourself to the end that you love God. It makes you think of Proverbs 4.23. I'm giving you some credit here. It makes you think of Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You are to guard and direct the loves of your heart. You are to make sure that your love is going out to the proper objects and that in proper proportions. The Lord your God fights for you to do good to you, to fulfill His good promise to you, to bless you. So therefore, be diligent to watch over your own heart. This is the real heart of devotion to God. And so it is for us today, too. The Lord Jesus taught us to think about loving God in this way. Now, earlier in the chapter, uh, you'll recall, the call to devotion went forth as a command to cling to the Lord. I think there's some overlap between the call to cling to God and the call to love God. God. This command, clinging to God, doesn't merely communicate a general stick-to-itness. It means more than perseverance, more than just don't let go, don't give up, don't quit, hang on. There's a more personal nuance to it. This same word is uh, used in Genesis 2.24 in the book of the Law of Moses for God's basic plan for the institution of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling, cleave, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So a man clinging to his wife, holding fast to his wife, surely that means more than just hang in there and stick it out and don't leave, right? And so too it is with clinging to God. Hold fast to Him in in loyalty and affection. To cling to God speaks, I think, of a settled, affectionate, not giving up fidelity and loyalty to the Lord your God. Cling to Him in love, like a husband should his wife and wife her husband. This is the God, after all, who entered into covenant with you, right? So that He would be your God and you would be His people, So you would be his and he yours. So be very careful to love God. Be very strong to cling to God. Has God saved you through Christ to be part of his people? Then I must ask you, are you being very careful to love and cling to God? Or, or might you have more of a if-it-happens-it-happens kind of posture? Be very careful. How? 
For Israel, in Joshua's day, it meant driving out and not associating with the Canaanites. Obviously, it doesn't mean the same thing for us, right? It doesn't mean storm the neighbor's privacy fence. <laughs> Clinging to the Lord and mixing with the nations would not coexist for Israel. Uh, they could cling to one or the other. I do think it can mean something somewhat similar for us, something older theologians called separation, separation from the world, a kind of non-association with the world. Now, this doesn't mean retreating from the world, like a kind of monasticism. It doesn't mean refusing to enjoy the good and wholesome things that are in the world as God's gift of common grace to everyone. That would be a kind of asceticism. Separation from the world means not being conformed to the patterns of the world. It means not loving the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Just like Israel could cling to the Lord or cling to the nations, so you, too, can cling to God or cling to the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. <clears throat> now, uh, I don't have anyone in particular in mind when I say this. I really don't. But that does get your attention, doesn't it? Um, but I am just sure with where uh, the church in America is today, even, even healthy churches like our own, I'm sure that it is the case for at least some in this room that you are mixing far too much with the world for a love for God to have any real chance to flourish in your heart. You're in the world and of the world. Maybe in your conversations or jokes or entertainment choices or relationships. I mean, we should have relationships with unbelievers, but our associations with them should be efforts to be a light to them and a blessing to them, not a kind of fellowship in darkness whereby we share interest in and enjoyment of and participation in things that God detests. Uh, you should consider if you might be the one I'm talking to, who needs to take heed to this call to separation. As I mentioned in the introduction to this sermon, there are two main encouragements given in this chapter to support the exhortation to devotion. There are two main motivations given to love and cling to God. The first we've already seen is the love and grace and power of God. How can you be very careful to love God? Well, remember, know and keep knowing in your heart and in your soul, God's past faithful, redeeming work and God's good promises to work in, on your behalf in the future. And doing that will help you remember not only that you have an obligation to love and cling to the Lord, it will also help you remember that the Lord is the kind of God that you would want to love and cling to. Remembering how God has acted for the sake of His people should motivate them to cling to Him. Right? Imagine your Old Testament Israel. Your God has fought for you. Your God has promised good to you. He drove out the nations in the past. He'll drive them out in the future. Love Him. 
If we can modernize this theology, we might say something like, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Jesus, our God, has and will come and fight for His people. He has and will win for us victory over sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, all persecutors, mockers, devils, suffering, sadness, sickness, victory over everything that might stand in the way of us being most blessed forever in Him. Is this not the kind of God that you would want to love and cling to? The goodness of the Lord. How could you? How could we? How could I, like I do far too often, want to be conformed to the patterns of this world in light of all that God has done for us? How could we want to live like the world and instead of live like those who have been saved from sin to be a special treasured possession of God in the earth? God's goodness should motivate us to cling to Him. And the other great motivation for being careful to love God is what comes next in the chapter. Warning of God's judgments. Look at verse 12. This begins our last main point. Believe God's faithfulness to judge. Verse 12, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations out before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now, that's very interesting. God says, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations out before you if you cling to them and marry them and associate with them and they with you. If you cling to them, the Lord won't drive them out. If you choose not to drive them out, the Lord won't drive them out. The Lord will give you what you've chosen. He will let you cling to them and marry and mix with them. He won't pry them from your clinging grasp. And if you choose to cling to them, know for certain that you are stuck with them. So the Lord compares them to a snare and a trap. Uh, this is the judgment of giving people over to their own sin. It makes you think of Romans 1 giving over to people to pursue their own depravity and letting them have the bitter consequences of the sin they choose for themselves. So Joshua tells them, the Lord will allow you to go that way. But here's the warning. These nations will be like a snare and a trap and a whip and thorns. Certainly, this is true in the case that these nations will oppose Israel um, in ways that negatively affect them with respect to their economy, their military. But that won't be the reason that the presence of these nations could ultimately lead to Israel perishing from off of this good land the Lord gave to them. No, that will only happen because of the spiritual troubles or the moral troubles into which Israel will choose to follow these remaining nations. 
They will serve their gods and bow down to them. And in that case, Israel could perish quickly from off the good land that the Lord gave to them. They, they could be sent out from this land in exile. Now, verses 14 through 16 repeat the same basic warning, but it does so only as the end of a great crescendo, which starts building in verse 14. Look there now. And you can feel the intensity is thick when Joshua says this. Verse 14, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So like he did in the beginning of the speech, Joshua once again emphasizes his age to get Israel's attention, except this time in even starker terms. First, right, he starts with, and now. Sometimes this word is translated, behold, look. It's like maybe when Pastor Dan says to everyone, okay, look up here, eyes up here. So and now, behold, all Israelites, look up at Joshua. I am about to go the way of all the earth. And more literally, the verse says, I am going today. I am going this day the way of all the earth, which means I'm dying. Listen to me. And then I think he even heightens the intensity of the point he's about to make even more by telling them that they know, you know, all of you, in the core of who you are, in your hearts and your souls, you know what I'm about to say is true. I'm dying, and I know that you know what I'm about to tell you. It's as if Joshua grabs Israel by one shoulder and grabs them by the other shoulder and pulls them close and says, pay attention. And what is the point at hand that's so precious and important to him? Not one word has failed. Of all the good words that the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. God did everything He said He would do. Everything. No good thing did He withhold from all that He promised. Right? This is presented in absolute terms. God's faithfulness is absolute. Not one word failed. All of the good things the Lord your the Lord promised. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Well, we've heard this before in Joshua, haven't we? Of course. This, in many ways, is the big theme of Joshua. God keeps His promises. He makes sure they come to pass. You can count on it. God did and will do what He said He would do. Not one word of God's good promises fell to the ground unfulfilled. But where Joshua takes this theme of God's faithfulness next hasn't been developed in the book of Joshua as much. Joshua's about to tell them that it isn't only God's promises for good that won't fall to the ground. There isn't one word of God that will fall to the ground unfulfilled. And that includes more than just His promises to do His people good. Look at verse 15 and 16. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. 
if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. I call this God's frightening faithfulness. God has been faithful to keep all His promises to do you good and grace and mercy. He fulfilled all those words. They all came to pass. And God will be faithful to keep all His promises to judge and justice and and vengeance. He'll fulfill those words too. All of them will come to pass as well if, if you turn away from Him and refuse to cling to Him. Dale Ralph Davis says, The Lord's faithfulness is a two-edged sword, that He is faithful both in grace and in judgment. The Lord's fidelity is not displayed just in covenant blessing, but in covenant judgment as well, by which He testifies He has not let go of His people, but He pursues them even in their sins. We do not have a tame, safe God, but one who is faithful, faithful to heal and destroy. The Lord's faithfulness is a two-edged sword indeed. Isn't this a magnificent illustration of the truth that Pastor Dan preached from 2 Timothy 2 just a few weeks ago? If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. If Israel is faithful, God will remain faithful. He'll do what He promised, save and bless. If Israel is faithless, God will remain faithful. He'll do what He promised in that event too. Discipline and and judge. He can't deny Himself. God won't go back on His Word. God is not a man that He should change His mind. He's watching over His Word to fulfill it. Faithful to save. Faithful to judge. In either case, faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Did you notice the same absolute language about God's faithfulness and grace was also used about God's faithfulness and judgment? Absolutely faithful. Just as all the good things the Lord your God promised, good things have been fulfilled, so the Lord will bring all. The absolute term again. His words will not fall to the ground. Now, you know that many people don't actually believe this, or at least they live like they don't believe this. They believe God is only halfway faithful, faithful in grace, but not faithful in judgment. Are you presumptuous like this about God's Word? Do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness, knowing that God is kind and faithful and good to His people? And so you casually wave your hand at the warnings of judgment in God's word as if God won't really do those things. He just says them because it's an effective way to control people, like a mom who counts to three at the grocery store but doesn't actually do anything about it. Now, some insist, right, God will fulfill his promises for good, for mercy. But they choose to live in unrepentant sin because they've somehow talked themselves out of truly believing that God will also fulfill His promises for judgment. And they may insist and even claim, God has said it, His faithfulness depends on it, God has plans for me, plans for a future and a hope, plans for welfare and not for calamity, plans to prosper me and not harm me. 
But we have to make an effort to understand and believe these good promises in the context of what they actually mean and what conditions might be attached to their fulfillment and how other promises of God might actually pertain more immediately to our situation. Romans 2, 4 and 5, Some will presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. But because of their hard and impenitent heart, they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, God is not a liar. God is not a double talker. God is not truthful and faithful out of one side of his mouth when he promises good and then just putting on a ruse when he speaks out of the other side, warning of judgment. Right? The devil is the one who's a lying snake, not the Lord our God. So I implore you, like Joshua implored Israel, believe God's faithfulness to judge. And Israel tragically would find out that God was faithful to bring judgment and and take them out of the land, just like he had been faithful to bring blessing and bring them into it. Now, it strikes me that the opposite um, can be a problem for us too. You can believe God is halfway faithful and insist and know and be sure that God will bring his promises of judgment to pass. But for some reason, you're not as convinced that God actually will fulfill his promises to do good and forgive and bless and give grace to anyone who will come to Christ and trust him. Now, here's an important question for us to consider. How do the warnings of Scripture function in the lives of genuine believers? Here's the profound answer. You ready? They warn them. The warnings of scriptures warn believers, and it works. Uh, consider Psalm 19, speaking of God's laws and commandments, speaking of God's words, which we have in this book. The psalmist says, More to be desired are these words than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The psalmist says, I love your words, Lord, and part of what is so great about them is that they warn me. They warn your servants. Even these warnings are sweet like honey to me because of the danger they keep me from and the reward that they point me to. You know how true believers respond to the warnings of God's word? True believers believe the warnings. And those who put their faith in Christ as he's presented in God's word, so also respond to the warnings of God's word in faith. They trust that God's warnings of judgment are true. And so believing them, they don't ultimately, finally unrepentantly, decisively go in that direction and spurn the warning altogether. So God's warnings effectively warn believers. And so these warnings actually work together with the good promises to keep us for God. 
And so through faith, faith in the warning, faith in the promise for good, through faith we are kept by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed when Christ returns because God empowers his own to keep responding to the word in faith. Here's another important question. How are we to think about God's judgments that come upon Israel? Mercifully, uh, Paul addresses this issue in Romans 11. Romans 11.20 says, Israel was broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Believe him. So do not become proud. Ha <laughs> ha, look at Israel, I'm not like them. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Israel, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. But even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has power to graft them in again. God has power to give his people faith. So how should you respond? Like Paul tells you to, stand fast through faith. Note God's kindness and his severity. We need both motivations to spur us on to devotion to the Lord. Just one example, a description of the church in, in Acts 9. Acts 9.31 says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And listen to this. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They multiplied. Friends, uh, let me close by saying this, that you, yes you, even you, are going the way of all the earth. That's why it's called the way of all the earth. <laughs> um, you are going to die like Joshua did, and like everyone who was listening to Joshua did. Unless the Lord returns first, which is a real and glorious possibility. But in either event, death or Christ's return, uh, it will mean judgment for you if you don't repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And the good news is that trusting in Christ saves you from the judgment of God that you rightly deserve. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the divine judgment as a man that men deserve from God as the substitute of his people. And he, he took it all. So there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So at the cross, God showed, didn't he, his faithfulness to judge and his faithfulness to bless? Because of what Jesus did, God saves and blesses sinners, but he does so in a way that does not at all compromise his faithfulness to judge and punish sin. And so we love and cling to Christ as our Savior and God. So let us be very careful to love our Lord, knowing as we do His severity and His goodness and His absolute faithfulness. And let's pray.
God, great is your faithfulness. God, we praise you that you cannot deny yourself and that you don't. And we praise you for this great gospel, this great gospel by which we are saved from judgment, and yet still you show that you are faithful in judgment. We praise you that you are just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. God, we praise you for sending Christ to become a curse for us so that we, who have not been careful to do all that the law says, so that we who trust Him may receive the blessing promised to Abraham. Thank you, God. God, I pray that you would help us to think about you uh, more rightly and more highly and just more than we ever have before. God, I pray you'd help us to walk in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, for anyone who might think that you are, for some reason, less faithful on either side of the ledger. God, would you help them to, to believe your promises? God, I pray that those who don't believe in your faithfulness to bless and save, God, would you do a special work and and maybe give them assurance of salvation through faith in your promises for the first time. I just pray that you would, again, do in, in each one of us. You see our hearts. You know what each one needs. So do in each one of us uh, what we need, uh, what is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.